Remember the hair color motto about you're not getting older, you're getting better? Well, opinions differ, and these days we have debates about how you define older. Wise women do seem to agree that you've got to find a way to embrace the whole adventure. Calling it an adventure isn't self-deluding if you acknowledge right off the bat that this one may involve hip replacements. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. From colonial times, when qualities valued for sought-after wives were that she be civil and could be up to 50, to proposed legislation in 1915 that would have made it illegal for a woman over 44 to wear cosmetics for the purpose of creating a false impression, to today when we celebrate Ruth Bader Ginsburg lifting weights and issuing why Supreme Court decisions, we are reminded that the stature of older women has been a roller coaster ride over U.S. history. These tidbits are a smidgen of what we learn from Gail Collins' new book, No Stopping Us Now The Adventures of Older Women in American History. Gail brings her wit, journalistic chops, and keen eye for storytelling to guide us on this roller coaster ride. Many of us relish Thursdays and Saturdays when we get to read her op-ed pieces in the New York Times, where she has been since 1995, including a stint as the first woman to be the New York Times editorial page editor. It is a distinct pleasure to welcome you, Gail Collins, to Just the Right Book. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's start where you started. Uh, with that ad for wives, yeah. what was going on in colonial times? Well, early the early colonists were all guys, and so they were desperate, desperate to get women to come over, not only because they wanted companions, but because they wanted people to help them with putting up a house and doing all the things you do on a farm. And so they sent back letters to uh, England where there was actually uh, um, an overabundance of single women at the time and saying that they needed a wife and the requirement was that she be civil and under 50 years of age. <laughs> That's all they cared about. And um, they did And did well. they come? <laughs> oh, yeah, a whole bunch. And so you talk about in the colonial times, women – there was and there wasn't any ageism or a lack of ageism, not maybe any. And and tell us why you think that was. Well, the the one well, there's two cosmic rules about the value that people that society puts on older women. Of course, families put value on their mothers, sisters, whoever their relatives, no matter what age they are. But when society looks at you. They value you either if you're scarce, which was certainly a rule in colonial America. Right. Uh, if Wasn't you, the ratio like six to one? Yeah. Oh, yes. And and if you went to like the Wild West where there were towns where there were like six women in the entire town, you could be 90 years old and people would be begging you to run for mayor or marry them or do anything else. But once you hit a point where there were, you know, there was an equal number, at least plenty of women everywhere. The only real way that outer society valued you was by your economic 
worth. Mm-hmm. Older men tended to be valued more because they worked longer once they they worked and they worked longer. And once they'd finished working, they often had considerable assets if they'd done well. So they still had economic value to the community. Whereas women, uh, once you got to the point where most middle-class women were simply supposed to be wives and mothers, didn't really have much of a role once the kids were grown. They were kind of extraneous and they were valued that way. And so, because when you, when you go through the book, so the book is set up by decades Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about some of the decades, but it's pretty clear that there were decades like um, the 20s mm-hmm. when Did not work out women, at all for older women. That Very wasn't bad. working <laughs> out. Um, and then there were periods like the 60s. And it's clear that a lot of it is economic. How much do you think is a backlash from one decade to the other, like women looking like they were getting ahead of themselves? Well, there's always a backlash to something. You know, there are periods when women do very well uh, for one reason or another. And then, for instance, during World War II, there was nobody more popular than older women in America. All the guys were out at war. And they went to work. Yes. And the younger women mostly did not want to work. They wanted they wanted to have their children and they wanted to stay home with their children. They were not enthusiastic about going to work and leaving their households. So older women were stupendously popular. There were thousands of stories about how wonderful it was to see an 80-year-old woman riveter, you know, we know about Rosie the riveter, but there was also the 80-year-old riveter, and she was great too, and how great it was to see 70-year-old women waiting on tables and balancing trays of dishes. I'm not sure how great they felt about it either, but the vision of society was that older women were very useful and valuable because they were so needed. Then when the 50s came along, all the guys came back there weren't enough jobs to go around. There were so many people who wanted them. And the last thing you wanted was to have older women, you know, hanging around trying to get jobs that younger people wanted. So then things went just the other way. Dramatically. Dramatically. Yeah. Very And so were women fired? I mean, they were in these jobs or was it just presumed they would quit once the war was over and soldiers came back? There was a strong presumption that they would quit. Um, Certainly some of them were pushed out, but the whole society, suddenly when all of society is saying, oh, yay, the guys are back, let's make way for them. Let's not be just sitting out there working for penny money. That was one of the things people kept Mm. talking about. She's really very well off. She's just working for penny money and pocket change. And look at those poor men out there who are starving to death. Of course, none of that made any sense. Women's the women's jobs or work in stores and things, yeah. and they weren't really looking for men. But there was a national vision that the role of women should be to go home and stay home, so that the men could return and things could go back to normal. And so they did, and they did, and it was it was very hard on older women. And what many of them did, which uh, is one of the better stories of our nation, I think, is a lot of them went into helpful roles, you know, mm. doing some kind of social doing work, work in their community. Yeah, doing something to, you know, and many of the old women's clubs that had been formed to be sort of social and, you know, hang around and have tea in the afternoon, revisioned themselves and people who worked, you mm. know, helping women who came out of jail, helping poor women who needed a place to stay in the community. Uh, working to clean up downtown or whatever, or pasteurize milk. And certainly, to do. certainly Eleanor Roosevelt set a 
high bar and must have been motivating for, I mean, think of what she did post. Eleanor Woman was the most amazing middle-aged woman, Eleanor Roosevelt, I'm sorry, was the most amazing middle-aged woman in American history, period, full stop. She's my idol. And she ran around all by herself. Uh, The Secret Service went crazy because she insisted on driving herself all over the country, so they finally taught her how to use a pistol. So she'd have a gun with her in the car. So she's driving with her pistol, going to all the places her husband never wanted to go to, let alone could go to, going to see all the forgotten people, the poor people, black discriminated communities, Mm -hmm. and bringing back the stories to her husband and bringing other women into government, women who were high achievers during the war who and who were just ready to to do stuff. So speaking of president's wives, one of the women that you seemingly were fascinated by and I as a reader became fascinated by was Martha Washington. I love Martha Washington. So tell I never us thought about I would say that. I mean, who knew? I mean, who you don't even hear that much about her except she was like a wealthy wood, widow who married George Washington. Exactly, and that's sort of the point. Uh, she was a wealthy widow. She had two children, uh, and she fell in love with George. They got married. He got. He then, of course, took over all of her stuff. You know, you don't get to keep your business yourself once you're married. And they fixed up Mount Vernon with her money. And um, if you're wealthy and you're important in, in those days when there are no hotels really or anything around, you're expected to take in pretty much anybody, any middle-class traveler that's wandering down the, the road. And so Martha would have something like 300 guests a year, mm. and some of them would stay for a month or more. She was running like this massive hotel, <laughs> keeping all these people happy. And after dinner, she would have to entertain them all because George would go sneaking off to his study and to be left alone. He would leave her. Yeah. And she would be stuck entertaining all the usually male guests. And one of them wrote back at some point and said, you know, I actually had a very good time last night talking with Mrs. Washington. You know, I believe if this keeps up someday, I may be just reconciled to the idea of old women. And he was at the time, I think, 56 and she was 62. But she was the old woman and he was the young gay guy out on the road. But she did all these things. She During the war, she was at Valley Forge. She encouraged the troops. She was supportive of him in every possible way in his life. But the one thing that did not happen was that they did not have children mm. together, which was pretty clearly something about George, although George liked to hint that it must be something about Martha. But Even though she had had two kids. She had two kids already, husband. yeah, and she, yeah. Was, she was still in her 20s when she got married to George, so it wasn't like she was too old to do it again. But the vision of what a woman was supposed to be by the time we got past colonial America and into the 1800s was so much about motherhood Mm-hmm. that Martha just got ignored completely. And when people wanted to write about the woman in George Washington's life, they wrote about George Washington's mother, who he hated. She was a terrible woman. He didn't like her at all. They had nothing to do with one another. But she was the one who got celebrated and not poor Martha. Uh, one fact that stunned me was the fact that Martha Washington and other wives of soldiers were at Valley Forge during the Revolutionary War. Now, I think of Valley Forge, those days of that battle being the most abysmal of conditions, and yet they were there and doing what? 
Well, Martha was, I, I cannot say Martha was living in one of the tents in, you know, the ice flows, but she was, they, they had little, you know, houses, houses for the officers, but she was cooking and she was helping the wounded and they were all, all the women who were there were making bandages for the, and they were basically spending all of their time trying to help particularly the wounded soldiers survive the winter. Hmm. And that's what she did. So one of the pieces of the book that was fun to think about is the early women who ran for political office. So on the one hand, we had Rebecca Felton, who was there for like a day, and you have mm-hmm. a picture of her, mm-hmm. which, I mean, she really looks, she looks elderly. I don't, I don't know <laughs> what I think elderly. the difference between <laughs> old and elderly. And then there's Margaret Chase Smith. So... um Tell us about Margaret Chase Smith. Margaret Chase Smith really knocks me out. She started like every all the women who got into Congress early on were the widows or the daughters of dead congressmen. They they inherited the seats. They weren't just people in the community who suddenly went out and started running for office. And Margaret Chase Smith's um, husband had been a representative, and um, he was and he was a bad husband. He was just constantly, you know, having affairs and giving her social diseases and all sorts right. of really bad, bad, bad. But she, you know, persevered and she was this very sort of League of Women Voters looking, you know, kind of majestic, very, you know, mm-hmm. very great demeanor. Uh, and she became a member of the House of Representatives, and she really liked it. And she became the first woman in Congress to call out McCarthy right. for his commu- anti-communism and his trying to drive everybody crazy and uh, ruin people's lives, claiming that they were communists. And she she stood up to people, and she decided she wanted to be a senator, which to run on her own. And even though she had gotten to the House by this special little way, she was the first one to run for the Senate on her own, just out of right. her own ambition. And she got elected. And um, she was a great kind of moderate Republican of the kind we don't really have much of anymore. You know, she, she was very tough on military stuff, but very conscious of social needs, very conscious of fairness, very conscious of discrimination issues. And um, then she decided that um, she wanted to – Barry Goldwater was look, looking like he might be the candidate in 64 uh, for right. president. And she thought that she should run, that she'd be a much better president than he would. So she started going out and running around. And all of the stories she noticed about her candidacy, which was a big deal for a little bit there, started out with 66-year-old woman runs for president. And the headline, finally, she complained and said, all these stories are about how I'm 66 years old. What is this? And they wrote another story in the LA Times saying, with the headline saying, 66-year-old woman complains about being called 66. She could not get away from it. And uh, one of the LA columnists wrote and said, well, the right time to run for president is in your 50s. That's very clear. However, when women are in their 50s, they have a physical condition going on that makes them irrational. Mm. That would be menopause. And uh, therefore, they can't do it then. So that means women- They have to get past that. Yeah, but she's basically his thing was, well, that means they just can't run. We just can't be having a woman running for president. It's never going to work out. But- um, You know, one of the observations I had reading the book and thinking about women that were in political office early in- you know, uh, like when you were talking about that she was the first one calling mm-hmm. uh, Eugene McCarthy's committee out. Is it a fair statement to say that women who have been in the Congress seem to be more willing to be independent thinkers and not necessarily 
carrying the party mm. line? I'd like to argue that. And there are certainly some things that they're better at, even right now in Congress. The women, no matter how crazed and partisan it is, the women have always been better at working together mm -hmm. and doing things to get along and across party lines and stuff like that. And I think that still goes on much more than it does with men. But um, I don't know if they're always – I mean, I, I spent a long time. I spent most of the 1970s in, in Hartford, and um, Ella Grasso was – Governor. governor for quite a bit of that. And I, I wouldn't call her a sort of a dramatic, unusual thinker. I mean, she was very much a pragmatic party politician. And I'm not sure she did a whole lot of things differently than if it had been a man yeah. in the job. So might not be. So one of the other things I thought about is the world of actresses overcoming um, yeah, that's quite aging. a bit different. I, I would argue throughout the book that as women are becoming more economically important, that we're overcoming a lot of age discrimination. But I must say, if you're an actress, it's a lot harder row to hoe. And, you know, one of the – so you have a hilarious thing in here where Betty Davis actually ran an ad yes. when she was sort of aging right. out right. of her role, saying, you know, woman with experience. <laughs> Did that get her hired? It did get her attention again, and she claimed it was a joke, and I guess it was to some extent, but it was a joke about the fact that nobody was hiring her. And she did then get a whole new career, which was great, but I have to point out that a lot of it involved those movies about um, Baby Jane and um, people eating yeah, dead, dark, serving dead canaries to their sisters on at dinner time and other weird stuff like that, chopping people up. But, but it was a job. So one of the things that I loved is you mention that Dustin Hoffman yes. was only six years younger than Anne in, Bancroft. In The Graduate, yes. Little little Dustin allegedly just graduating from college and the grown-up, you know, lascivious, married mom, elderly woman almost, Anne Bancroft, were six years apart. So do you think like the women that we think of, like Catherine Hepburn or Meryl Streep, um, are really the exceptions to the possibility that you can age within the industry, or do you think it's better now? I think it's somewhat better now, just in because older women have a lot more economic clout. You know, most people who watch, say, network TV are, I think, over fifty-five. I mean, it, it's it's it, things have changed because there's now so much media that there can be media devoted much more specifically to a to channel, as they yeah. say. And um and and some people like Meryl Streep just keeps going. I mean, and she's uh, of course the problem is that whenever you complain about women and being discriminated against, people say, "Well, but Meryl Streep, look how well she's doing," and she is. But um, but she's still the exception. Yeah, and it's true still that if you have a bunch of actors or actresses uh, together in a group of the same age, the women will often be playing the mothers of the men. I mean, it's, it's just the way it is. The way it is. And I talked to some people in, in the, the actors' unions about it, and they've said that um, older actors and actresses can both get parts because there are more parts now than ever for older people, you know, roles for yeah. older people. But the problem is that sort of middle age period when it's much easier for men to sort of coast along looking like Like the 40s still, and 50s. Yeah. And um, and that's the point at which women have a lot more trouble getting parts. The other th thing that uh, I thought a lot about is the line between, like, where do you draw the line of trying to look younger? And where where do we as women 
sort of accept our age. And so there's a couple of quotes that I want to mention. One is, we talked about 1915, they tried to make it illegal that if you were over 44 and dolled yourself up, that that would be a misrepresentation. But then we have uh, a woman by the name of Alva Belmont, who was a well-known suffragist. Mm -hmm. And she then, uh, there's a quote from her, and it's from an ad that she did, a testimonial Mm -hmm. kind of thing. A woman who neglects her personal appearance loses half her influence. The wise care of one's body constructs the frame encircling our mentality, the ability of which ensures the success of one's life. I advise a daily use of Pond's two creams. And then one of my most favorite quotes is from Nora Ephron, who in one of her books said the only difference between her and the homeless woman in her neighborhood was eight hours a week of maintenance. So what? What's your observation about, you know, a lot of us color our hair. Mm. Some people get Botox. There's, I think you had a statistic about the number of people that are getting plastic surgery is wild. So where do you, what's your observation about, like, when do you give up the ghost? Mm. And what do you do to sort of stay in the game? I, it does. My favorite quote in her entire wonderful Nora Ephron, uh, when she said that you know the difference between you know women now and, and women earlier and their ability to stay in the workforce and do stuff, you know, wasn't about exercise. It wasn't about better living. It was all about hair dye. Yeah, and it's true that it, when it came to a point where it was not only easy but socially acceptable for women to color their hair, when women did not go gray anymore, when most women just never went gray, that was a big change. It it, it made a lot of difference. And um, I think there's certainly an acceptance now that if you if you feel the mood, uh, if you want to, say, have Botox treatments or stuff like that, that that's fair game. And I think everybody's question is how far people want to go when it comes to real cosmetic surgery. Mm. And um, it's it's everybody's own choice. But um, it's it's I, it's troubling to me that, that people will do it for so long and so hard that they look like another person by the time they're done. Because at some point, you have to give it up. Yeah. Or, right? or, or you do look like another person, basically. Yeah. The, the other um, topic that... Uh, I, I want to get to here is whether you wrote the 50th anniversary, you wrote the intro for the 50th anniversary edition of Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. Yeah. Mystique. And what do you think Betty would say now? Do you Do you think she would think that there has been profound change, some change in terms of the stature that women have, older women have today? I think she'd think there was profound change, but then she'd have fine things to complain about. Yeah, she was not a person. Good. Yes. Right. But when she when she got older, I think when she was turning 60, it was her 60th birthday party. She was almost suicidal. She just really couldn't bear the idea of going out or anything. It just seemed like the end to her. And but then because she was who she was, she realized she was still doing all this stuff that she'd been doing. She was still in all these causes. She was still giving speeches. She was still running around the country helping to organize people. And when she hit her seventieth birthday, she published a book 
and about you know feminism being forever and not not giving in to aging and basically saying there's no such thing as aging. We're going to just keep on keeping on forever. And so she did fine for quite a while longer. It you know it you know for people who are in good health or decent health and who have interests, there there's no reason why you shouldn't just keep popping along forever. Yeah, and you know, but I always. You know, I was a young woman in those days mm-hmm. when Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, and you can't help, I thought it then, I think it now, that there was always something easier for a woman who was more attractive, like Gloria Steinem was, mm-hmm. than Betty Friedan to get their message across. Um, Maybe, but... If if you accept the fact that you're getting older, I mean Gloria is just remarkable, and yeah. there's nobody She's else like her in the entire universe. But if you accept the fact that you're getting older and you try to look as attractive as you can for your age, there's no reason you can't just be doing anything you want to do. There's no longer this is no longer a country. It's not that an says obstacle. You can't become a professor, or you can't become the head librarian or whatever it is you're doing because you look old. I mean, it, people do it all the time and nobody yeah. stops and says, why is that woman, you know, giving us directions when she appears to be in her seventies? It's just, it. people get lucky and people don't as far as their careers go, but there's a thousand things to do in the community and every community in America just waiting for you out there. So that made me think about today. So if I think about a woman like Elizabeth Warren, was a woman in her 70s, mm-hmm. and it made me think whether the objections or criticism of her would be more more directed at her gender, her age, or her policies, because that would be an indication of things being different. What well, would you I've got, think, Gail? I've got a really good hint for you. In the Democratic presidential lineup right now, we have four people in their 70s. And the only one whose age really doesn't get talked about is Elizabeth Warren. Exactly. The three guys are constantly, every time they bring one of them up, and it's because she's the youngest of the 70s of them, but it's mostly because she looks so great. She's so athletic. She's so vibrant. She's so hopping around all over the place that aging is not a thing that that you people tend to worry about when they think of her, unlike... uh, Bernie Sanders or or Joe Biden or people like that. It's just she's she is who she is and she's doing fine. You know, that's my impression. I thought, well, what better evidence? I mean, that people might object to her policies. I haven't even heard the fact that she was a woman brought up as much, but certainly I haven't heard her age being brought up. No, and I think to tell you the truth, the age thing is not that it, the woman thing still exists. I someday it will be overcome, and once it is, we'll get used to it. But the woman thing is still out there. There's still a sense of well, women. It's different. You know, vice president would be a nice job. You know, stuff like that. I, I don't think we've gotten past that kind of discrimination when it comes to presidential politics. I really don't. Yeah, and and so speaking of that, and speaking of the so the you wrote a column uh, the other day about Kamala Harris mm-hmm. uh, dropping out, and and again you mentioned that there's some talk maybe she'll come back as vice president. So when you look at this huge field of Democrats, do you feel uh, in in that column? I think you mentioned there are 47 million uh, Democrats of 
native Democrats of presidential age, and probably 46.9 of them um, think that they could do a better job than Trump. Mm -hmm. That's from your column, (laughs) which I thought was, as always, um, when you make these points, funny and true. Do you think, so do you feel of the candidates that we've got, do you feel disappointed? Do you feel excited? Do you feel worried? Um, I could go with almost any of those at any point in time. <laughs> Certainly worried. I, um, you want this to be the best possible candidate. And in almost every one of them, you see some potential flaw that does not make them nearly as bad a prospect as Donald Trump is, but that you could see becoming a problem during a campaign. Um, Joe Biden has had a lot of trouble delivering his message mm-hmm. and giving answers that that work out and are not wildly defensive and um, are coherent. Um, Pete Buttigieg is doing great in Iowa, but is having no luck whatsoever, as far as I can tell, making any inroads into the black community. Mm-hmm. And no Democrat is going to get elected president unless he or she has really enthusiastic support so they from the vote. black community, so that the turnout is very high. So that's a problem there. Kamala Harris, um, I'm sorry that for her troubles, but she was not a very good candidate, really. Her, her campaign was disorganized, and she had a lot of trouble coming up with policies that she could stick to and run with and that you really felt were hers. I mean, she's very, I mean, um, lots of fun to talk to. She's she's a very nice person, mm-hmm. but she just did not seem that presidential to me. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Warren is, Elizabeth Warren is somebody who's been growing so much over the last 10 years or so. I mean, the first time I met her, it was even longer than that ago, but she reminded me of Sister Narita Marie, who taught me in ninth grade. You know, she just said, "I'm to do, to do, to do, to do." And now she, I mean, she just figured stuff out, and she's gotten much better, sharper, sharper, and funnier, and more at, at ease. And she's just way, way, way better as a candidate than she was. So, you know, I have some hopes that she'll continue to to grow. But um, it's she's. Do you, know, you worry that her policies? will mean that she'd lose independence? That's, well, it's great that you can actually even talk about policies. We get past the point where everybody's just talking about, you know, what you look like or how old you are. But yeah, the the Medicare for all thing is, I think she's finding it a difficult sell right now and is sort of trying to mush around with it a little bit. But we'll see. And do you think Amy Klobuchar can get any traction? Because she's so articulate on so many issues, but she doesn't seem to garner the kind of enthusiasm that Elizabeth Warren does. Yeah, she's had an interesting moment now. You go through all the candidates and you go through all the things as we've been doing this and that, the other thing, and at the end, at some point, somebody says, well, what about Amy Klobuchar? And and it's, oh, yeah, um, she just hasn't gotten right in the middle yet where she's under the kind of strain and stress that you need to be to see how a candidate really works out, but we'll see what happens. So you can't talk about politics without talking about uh, the impeachment uh, trial. So there's a lot we could talk about there, but let's pick one thing that um, might be amusing to get your point of view. And I know you wrote a column on this too. So I, this is a three-part question. Do you think Trump will throw Giuliani under the bus? Um, do you think uh, Giuliani will testify and do you think if he does, is that good or bad? Because if he lies, 
that it's the lie that will get the press and it will be then difficult to disprove it in the press. There's so many weird and disturbing things going on with Rudy Giuliani right now that I can't help believe. I don't know the idea of the president throwing him under the bus, how the president would feel about that in terms of you know what might happen with the Rudy danger. on the other side. Yeah. And, um, and, and they, he does seem to be very fond of Rudy. Um, but uh, all of this Ukraine stuff, all of this financial stuff, all of the very sleazy people that he's been hanging around with, it's, it's just his whole lifestyle is just, just completely fallen off track. And uh, I, I just – that something terrible is going to happen there, but I don't know what it is or what it will mm. mean. Do you think he will testify? Um, hard to imagine. Right? I could not be good for him in any way. Shape, but, or form. but it seems like it's something he would want. Nah. Nah. <laughs> he knows better than that. He knows better than that. But so talking about the press a little bit, what, you know, you've been at the time since 95, you've been involved in journalism since the 70s. I think one of the things we all worry about is that there is no longer a unifying, reliable, journalistic source that everyone looks to as presenting the facts, that the facts have now become subject to interpretation. So how do you think we're ever going to manage the kind of contagious misinformation that is out there. I, I had an instance this morning where I was on a news site like CNN or something like mm -hmm. that. No, it wasn't CNN, but it was a, a news site that I might look at, the yeah. New York Times, Washington Post or something. And this thing pops up that says that Fox has had more viewers and CNN has had its lowest ever. And there were all these statistics. Mm -hmm. So I followed it down the rabbit hole. And it came from an online uh, newspaper mm -hmm. called The Daily Caller, mm -hmm. which I then looked mm -hmm. up The Daily Caller. And there have been all these accusations of white supremacists using this as a platform, that the information's not reliable, but if you look at it, it looks perfectly straightforward. So how how do you as a journalist, how does your newspaper, how do we as a culture get back to where we're relying on common information? Um, we're going through a change that's, I can't think of any similarity. I guess maybe when we've started to get a mass media in the 1800s, it might be a little bit like that, but there's just... Nothing ever. We're, we're going to have to adjust to a universe in which there's all this stuff out there and the ability to communicate is completely and totally different than it ever was before. And I, I'm happy with the way my paper has dealt with all this mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, the, the commitment to factual truth, the commitment to trying to give stories, you know, sort of a balance presentation, uh, the division between the opinion side and the news side, all those things still exist. And there's 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wildly hardworking, really smart people running all around the world right now for us trying to find out what's going on. And I have total faith that the Times will continue to do that. Um, the part of this whole thing that's been worrying, not just me, but everybody who's sort of in the community of worrying about journalism people is what's happening to the coverage of state and local news. Yeah. There's no... You started out doing that, sure, right? Sure. Yeah. I started out... Um, my The first thing I did was in Connecticut. I, I, had no, I didn't have a job. My husband was working at the New Haven Register. And um, so I went around to all the papers in the state, all the little papers, and told them I would cover their state legislators for them and send them individual stories every week. Um, and the, I got 40 clients which is, I mean, the two great things were, A, I got 40 clients because there were 40 small papers out there covering Yeah, stuff. in those and, days. Yeah, and then B, I, I was, because I had to write 40 stories every week, at least, if not more, in order to keep all these people happy, it really broke down the barrier between writing and just talking or thinking. I, mm -hmm. write, I write faster than anybody else I know in the world. I might not write smarter, but I certainly, I am really, really fast. And I owe that all to all those papers in Connecticut on deadline waiting for me to send their special story about yeah. what happened in Guilford last week, what happened with the Guilford legislator or whoever. Uh, but nobody does that anymore because there's no economic model for it. You can't sell ads yeah. Uh, online. It just does not make you nearly enough money to pay anybody. Uh, if you're a small, looking at a small area of people, you can't get enough people. There are not enough people who are going to sign up and say, yes, I will happily pay you $40 a year just so I know what's going on in the state legislature. It's just, it's not a big enough market. So Everybody is struggling with whenever you hear go to meetings of journalists, that's what people are talking about. I'm going to do an event, I think, in May at the fundraiser for the Connecticut Mirror. Mm, um, I love them. Yes, which is the answer to this sort of thing. But how do you get enough of them around for everybody who needs one, who needs to know? I mean, there's nobody covering some state legislatures now. And if these guys are not watched, God knows what they'll do. They're difficult enough when they are watched, but the idea that they're now doing all of this stuff with nobody but lobbyists paying any attention to them is really, really scary. Well, and I feel like if w once there's some comfort that things won't get covered, there'll be a more brazen approach to how people do things. But I... I wonder if the model that the Connecticut Mirror is using, which is a nonprofit model, yeah. isn't the way that we're going to have to go, that there's going to need to be a civic commitment to making sure there is state and local coverage. I mean, a friend of mine runs the Keene Sentinel, and he's he and his staff work incredibly hard to keep figuring out the ways to make the paper economically viable. And Keene is lucky he has the commitment to it because that's what it takes. That's yeah. why a lot of these papers are going away. And I think you're right. There seems to be a general growing consensus that a great deal of this coverage is going to be, have to be done by nonprofits that are supported by their communities. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a problem in that then the wealthy people in the community who are doing the supporting are not going to be able to be ticked off very often about what the coverage is. But, and that's always been true. You always, you know, if the advertiser gets angry at your paper, then that could be a disaster. So um, it's the way to go. It's the future. And um, all we can do is just hope it happens fast. Are you optimistic really at all? 
Well, yeah, I'm optimistic about pretty much everything. Yeah, and, so am I. You know, and people, people care about this stuff. And the, the media, the community of the media is, and the community of concerned citizens about their, their, their towns it's and their growing. cities is growing more and more obsessed with this issue. So I have hope. Somebody sent me a, a picture one day. They had closed down um, the room where the, the press room had been in, in, in the state capitol in Hartford. And um, there was just stuff laying around. And my poor little Connecticut State News Bureau, which is what I called my thing that I Yeah, had, that you started, little, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it ran after long after I left. Other people bought it, and it, it continued to run. But there was just this little pathetic flag on one of the desks sitting there. And I thought, oh, my God. That's sad. So, Gail, one of the I, I'd like to close uh, with this. In in one of the um, some of the research that I did, uh, you had uh, noted that your mother Rita Gleason uh, had wanted to be a journalist. Yeah, and here you are, a woman in her seventies, working for one of the preeminent newspapers in the world and not only because you're incredibly talented or and write fast uh but because the world has changed uh enough to make that happen so what i'd love to do is close uh with you reading the last three paragraphs of your book which i thought were uh just lovely uh, and before you do that, because I want that to be the last, I want you to have the last word, I do want to mention to our listeners that I just had a ball reading this book because, you. you know, it reminds you, I'm a woman in my 70s also, but it reminded you of things like we forgot you couldn't wear pantsuits and you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that, but you brought together an array of characters through these decades that made me want to learn more about a lot of the uh, women. Thank and it you. was a reminder. It was, you know, they're reminders that on a bad day when I think we haven't made progress, I think about it, I think about all these stories and I realize we have made progress. Darn tootin' we have. <laughs> so I want to I want to thank you for thank your you. work lovely. as a journalist. I want to thank you for doing uh, this book. I want to thank you in advance for uh, committing to the event at the Connecticut Mirror. They had called me about that. And I'm going to close out our interview with your reading from your book. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Oh, I'm so glad. It was such a thrill to have you here. Remember the hair color motto about you're not getting older, you're getting better? Well, opinions differ, and these days we have debates about how you define older. Advertising guru Faith Popcorn calls 60 to 68 the childhood of old age, and then moves on to 68 to 78, the adolescence of old age, followed by the adulthood of old age, which lasts until the mid-80s. Then, by Popcorn's reckoning, you spend your late 80s and 90s in early late old age. Finally, it's time for genuine old age, which runs in her mind from 92 to 110. Wise women do seem to agree that you've got to find a way to embrace the whole adventure. Calling it an adventure isn't self-deluding if you acknowledge right off the bat that this one may involve hip replacements. Essayist Vivian Gornick recounted how turning 60 was like being told I had six months to live. 
until she discovered the advantages that came with realizing she could no longer retreat from the problems of today by taking refuge in a fantasized tomorrow. Gornick stopped daydreaming about what she might do later. When she walked familiar New York streets, she tried to pay as much attention to what was really happening around her and interact as much as possible with the people she met. Energy, coarse and rich, began to swell inside the cavity of my chest. Time quickened, the air glowed, the colors of the day grew vivid, my mouth felt fresh. A surprising tenderness pressed against my heart with such strength it seemed very nearly like joy. And with unexpected sharpness, I became alert, not to the meaning, but to the astonishment of human existence. It's fabulous. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gail. It was great to be here. Thanks. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by LitHub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and LitHub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.